Last week we were in the fellowship hall eating. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that good? <laughs> it was really, really good. And the food was good too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the food was good. Seems strange when we go a week without Bible study. I don't know. I yeah. Who's routine? Who who is really routine? For me? Everybody? Are you routine? Routine? Yeah, I think. I think by nature most of us are just kind of routine. And I I think I think so. I think so. Um, and so when you get out of your routine, mm-hmm. I, I it's. Weird. It is. It's it just there's a little strangeness to being out of out of your routine. It's your brain. It mixes things up a little bit. Step out of your comfort zone. Step that out of my comfort zone easy. by being out of my routine. <laughs> well, we're continuing in First John, of course, in this expository teaching. Last week, we're, we're going to start tonight in First John two twenty eight. But before we do. Because we kind of ended two weeks ago in a in the middle of a thought that John was putting forth in this letter, so I think we we should review quickly what we were looking at last time. In First John two eighteen, he said that this is the last hour, and we saw that in the New Testament, this is the only place that that term is used. That was news to me because I'm used to looking at terms like the end times or the last days. And and when I read that initially, before I studied it, I thought the last hour was just the same as those other terms. And yet it's not. Because that last hour used in 1 John 2.18 is in the present tense. So John is speaking in the present tense, simply saying that the time is short, that there's some urgency to what he's talking about. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Why else would he be writing a letter to the church if there wasn't the problem that was kind of urgent to address? But nonetheless, it's in the present tense, and he's talking about the urgency of the situation, and that to be careful is a little bit of a warning, so don't waste time here. Be diligent. And that's what the last hour means. The whole point is that he's talking in the present tense. And we're going to see tonight that there's a lot of present tense significance to this letter that he's writing and what he's communicating to the church. And then he said that they left us. Who were the they that left them? The, the, The Gnostic teachers and their followers, they left them. It was a very physical thing. They were in fellowship together, or were they? And then they left. And so these false teachers took them. And he said, they left us because antichrists have come. Present tense again. Keep the term present tense in your mind as we go through what we're going to be looking at in John's letter tonight. He said, because the antichrists are here. That's now. That's present. And the Antichrist is coming. Do you suppose they knew what that meant? Mm-hmm. Because Daniel talks a lot about... Clearly. 
Clearly they would have had a good indication of what John was talking about. And remember the context is he's talking to them about these false teachers, these Gnostic teachers. This was the beginning of Gnosticism. They probably wouldn't have understood that term because that came a little bit later. But notwithstanding, these were people that separated the church. There was a church split. That's what it was. And he was talking about it in the present tense. He says, those that left to follow the false teaching, they never belonged to us. Interesting. Any food for thought? <laughs> Lois has some, I'm sure. <laughs> Hi, Lois. <laughs> so is there some food for thought there in terms of these people that were in the church that left and John then says, hey... They were never with us. See, that's a heavy thought. Nothing's changed. What's the heaviness of what John was communicating there? That, hey, they were with us, but they didn't belong to us. There's a lot of implication here, isn't there? There's a lot of implication. It should give us pause and with some heavy heart, frankly, about those that are that are they're with us, but they don't belong to us. Uh, I mean, that's 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 powerful. That's powerful. Some people today, I think, <laughs> would call that being judgmental. Those very people would. Yeah, those very people would say, you're just being judgmental. What do you mean they didn't belong to you? You narrow-minded bigot. That, I mean, that's the term that we would hear, right? Yeah. Okay. But what does John call it? The truth. It's fascinating to me. So a couple thousand years has gone by, and here's John, and he's just calling it what it is. He's just simply stating a fact. They left us because they never really belonged to us. It's merely a fact. And yet, we would get lambasted saying that today, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. And John is just speaking the truth. Makes me wonder, 2,000 years ago, in that culture, what they were saying, those that left, that heard from people in the church, probably a small town like Ohio, where word gets around pretty quick. You know, something gets posted on Facebook and then you know it pretty instantly. Okay? You know, this person tells that person in the first century and they knew about it pretty quickly. I wonder what they were saying about John. Hmm. This participating with us but not belonging to us reminds, it reminds me, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, it kind of reminds me of Judas. He was one of the gang, wasn't he? Yeah. They thought he was. Hmm. Jesus said, hey, somebody's going to betray me. Yeah. And they were all looking around. Ernie, is that you? Not me. Okay, I mean, he did all the right. Susan? Scott? Yeah. yeah. Here it was. It was Judas. They didn't know. They didn't know. Judas never belonged to them. Wow. Mm -hmm. John then revealed that those who are in the light are anointed. Did anybody... <coughs> Did you have any thoughts a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at this truthfully 
that you have as a believer been anointed? Was that a new revelation to anybody? We have a seal on our head, on okay. our forehead. Yeah. So that shouldn't be any new revelation. Okay, but in terms of being anointed, had you thought about it in those same terms? When you're set apart. Okay. All right. And we're anointed by whom? Uh, the Holy One, according to the first first John. So, you're, if you're a believer, you're anointed by God. You have an anointing. This isn't something that other people have. As a believer, you are anointed. And so, what is that, by the way? What is an anointing? If you're anointed, what are you? Set aside. Set aside, blessed. <coughs> Set aside for what, Ernie? For worship. Okay. God's purpose. God's purpose. The whole point is that you have been given some special favor or function or purpose for God's sake. For His purposes. Everybody in this room, everybody that is a believer, if you are in the light and not in the darkness, you have an anointing from God. You need no more. You have been anointing for some special purpose by and for God. That's awesome, isn't it? No wonder he gives us all unique gifts. That's part of the anointing. So that then what? We do something with it. Hopefully. And we're going to see a little bit more about that, about hopefully doing something about it. So according to the truth of God's word, we've already received this anointing. Amen? We've received the anointing. Hmm. So the issue isn't the anointing, is it? What's the issue with the anointing that we've already been uh, given by God? Okay. Not following you, Bill. So we've been anointed. That's a non-issue. That is a biblical truth. Sally is anointed by God. Wes, Ernie, Brenda, everybody sitting in this room, anointing by God. That is a non-issue. What's the issue with your anointing by God? Use it appropriating the anointing that you already have. It's like being filled with the Holy Spirit. You've heard me say before that don't ask to be filled with more of the Spirit. When God filled you with the Holy Spirit, you were filled to complete fullness. Okay? The issue is appropriating, which means what? Taking it for your use. God gave it to you. That's right. So don't quench it. Take it for your use. So many in the church today, they don't even understand that they've been anointed, they've been filled with the Spirit, and then they sit on their haunches. And they wait. For what? For some fantastic experience. Yeah, yeah. When God says, no, just use it, I already gave it to you. Whoa. We're with no excuse. We've been anointed, we've been filled with the Spirit for God's purposes. So now, now, the fun part is, let's figure out what God's will is, His purpose, and we even make a big deal out of that one. It's not that complicated. But most of us, 
we tend to overcomplicate it, don't we? According to 1 John, we don't need to. The biblical truth is God has anointed us for His purposes. Simple. Then in John 2.24, he says, Make sure that the truth abides in you. Make sure. If you have your Bible, you might want to underline that if you're into underlining things in your Bible. What does it mean to make sure that the truth abides in you? Okay, and to do that, what must you do? Be in the Word. Be in the Word, okay. Okay, alright. So, insofar as it's up to you, do you have some responsibility? Absolutely! It's the same as abiding. It's the same as abiding in Christ? Okay, so the fact of the matter is, is that you are in Christ. Now what? Insofar as it's up to you, you must do something. Right. It's not just hearers, but doers. Exactly right. I love that. I love that. Because, because pews are filled regularly with people that are trying to figure that out. When all you have to do is just do something. It's almost like, okay, start by doing anything. But do something. Because in as far as it's up to us... We're called, we're commanded to do something. Make sure. That's what I love about spiritual disciplines. Ah, You put those spiritual disciplines in place, and what happens when you stop with your spiritual disciplines? I don't know about you, but I get all discombobulated. In a heartbeat, I can get discombobulated. And so you get to a point where you're doing something that, that you, you know, you're busy, and you've decided that, uh, and it's a, and not a bad thing. You're not doing a bad thing. It might even be with, with, with work. Um, when you've stopped doing something because your work got really busy, and the thing you stopped doing were some of the routines of your spiritual discipline because it's up to you to make sure that the truth abides in you, and then you stop doing those, and what happens? Yeah, you're in the tank. That's what happens. You're just in the tank. I've never talked to anybody that has had any other experience than that. Oh, I'm so engaged in my spiritual disciplines. I, you know, I have my whatever it is that, that you're doing, you know, in terms of in terms of disciplines. And then when I broke those disciplines, I, there was nothing good that came of it. There never is. So the truth is always present. The question is. Is it active in our lives? That's the point. Because there's so much of this is action-oriented, isn't it? It's like love. Love isn't good if it's not active. Right? Alright. So, because I can tell you that I love you, and if it's only a feeling, it means nothing. How do I... I mean, if I tell my wife I love her, but I don't demonstrate that, do I love her? Pretty empty words, huh? Yeah, pretty empty words. So, we'll finish this before we jump into 1 John 2.28 by just reading the last couple of verses here. Listen to this. 
This kind of summarizes almost everything that John's been talking about up to this point in his letter. 1 John 2, 24-27. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us. Even eternal life. Isn't it fascinating that John goes right to eternal life as the ultimate promise? Because God's promised a lot, hasn't he? Aren't there a lot of promises? And God, we were talking to Delta Group the other night. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the promises. There's a lot of promises of God. Ultimately, the promise is eternal life with him. And so John says, and this is what he promised us. He goes right to eternal life. Verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. There's the context. He's talking about those Gnostics. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. That means that the anointing that you receive from God remains in you. He doesn't take it away. It doesn't go away. Marvin, filled with the Spirit? Always filled with the Spirit? 100% of the Spirit. 100%. All the time. Amen? Amen. That's exciting when you stop and think about it. That's a promise of God. The Counselor is coming. God, the Holy Spirit, to fill you, to give you discernment. I mean, who does the teaching? The Holy Spirit does the teaching. God, the Holy Spirit, does the teaching. Yes. Nobody here does the teaching. It is the Holy Spirit right here. He puts it on your heart. It goes through here, goes into your heart, right? The Holy Spirit does the teaching. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit just as it has taught you remain in him there's a couple of things here the the uh, clearly indicated that you can have a counterfeit revival there are counterfeits remember the context here is he's talking about the gnostics so is this anointing real or is it counterfeit is your faith real? Is it counterfeit? Let's fast forward 2,000 years to, to, the, um, to the belief systems that we would call cults, Christian cults. Okay, They're Christianese, but they're cults. Is Jesus real or is he a counterfeit? It's pretty important that you know the truth. If the truth is not in you, you're in the darkness. That's what he's saying. It's really simple. Well, basically what he's saying then is the Holy Spirit's going to give you the ability to tell what is true and what isn't. And so if you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, there shouldn't be any question as to what... Finish that. <laughs> well, you should be there shouldn't be any question. As to what is truth and what isn't because the Holy Spirit's going to guide you that way. To the extent that what happens... You appropriate the fullness of the Holy Spirit that God has has given you to the point without you taking action 
God has given us the fullness of His Holy Spirit to teach us. What do we do with it? I love, I love it because, you know, Mike and, and Richie have this special relationship. And Mike lets him take all the sermon notes. And Richie loves that stack of sermon notes. And it's great. Nothing wrong with the sermon notes. In fact, it's great that you collect them. The point is, what do you do with it? I mean, if you're going to make a paperweight out of it, it doesn't do much good. If you're going to contemplate, hmm. That's why I love about Bible studies and women's Bible studies and the, and the men's Bible studies and the Delta group. Is a, it's about doing something with what we've heard. Let's, let's do something with it. If we sit around, I mean, the Bible, the Bible has some great stories about, about those philosophers that sat around and all they did all day long was contemplate these things. They always wanted to hear what was new, but they never did anything. They, they were intellectuals that never did anything. They never did anything. Let's pick up in 1 John 2.28. Someone read 1 John 2.28 through 3.3. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Hmm. Interesting. Because now all of a sudden uh, we are going to see a little bit of a change in tone with John in this letter. He starts out at verse 28. He says, and now. What tense is and now in? Present. I love this letter so much of it is in the present tense. He says, and now. That's kind of like, therefore. <laughs> I like therefore. Therefore we should... Read what he just a minute ago said, because otherwise we don't understand what therefore means. Therefore, he says, and now, and now, based on all these truths I've just revealed to you, and now, based on all this stuff that's revealed to you, that, by the way, you've heard this from the very beginning. Okay? So you heard the truth from the beginning. So, and now, based on that, dear children, who's that? Us. Okay. Don't you love John's heart? Dear children, Mike, don't you like being called dear children by somebody, especially like the Apostle John? I don't know, maybe I'm holding him up in too high esteem, but God used him very powerfully, right? Um, and he's just a man, but uh, you talk about using an anointing. <laughs> so that, that's the Apostle John, right? And he says, so dear children, that's us, continue in him. That means abide in what? Or who? Christ. Christ. It says, yeah. In fact, what he really means is, keep abiding in Christ. You've been doing it, but remember the context. There has been a split in the church. Yeah, keep his commands. Keep abiding in Christ. Wes, don't fall off the wagon, dude. Don't do it, man, because there's some that have. And remember what he said earlier? They weren't of us. They didn't belong to us. They never did. Ooh. I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> It is hard to imagine, isn't it? 
It's hard to imagine. But he says, continue in him. Why? So that when. I like that. Because what would be the opposite of when? It would have to be if. But he doesn't say if. He says, but when he appears, we may be confident. Yeah, it's, it's imminent. I mean, because remember, this is present tense. Now, I know that that's weird for us because it's been 2,000 years since he wrote this letter. God has that's right. And so what we understand that we don't have the mind of Christ. We don't, we don't understand the ways of God, right? And so time is one of those things. But he says in the present tense that when, when uh, Jesus appears, that we may be confident and unashamed. This is going to get interesting. In he says we can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So, essentially, he's just saying, we can paraphrase this by saying, hey, walk in the light. Because he was talking about those that were in the darkness. Don't be like those in the darkness. Remember Judas? Don't be Judas. Don't be in the darkness. Pay attention. Abide in Christ. Be in the light. Know the truth. Because the truth will set you free. Okay, So, we added that later. But... We know that the truth will set you free. We can be completely confident and assured in every single promise of God. Every single one, he says. Even eternal life. Question. Is eternal life the most important promise of God? You don't have to answer that. But it's something to think about. Because if you, if you do a study on the promises of God, that's fascinating. Wow. Fascinatingly powerful because the promises are all directed toward us. Hmm. You tell me that Christianity isn't about relationship. After a brief study of the promises of God. That's what he wants. He just wants a relationship with us, doesn't he? John says there's no fellowship between the light and the darkness. Even in this present, he uses it back then, 2,000 years ago. Even in this present evil age. Anybody read about the, I didn't get to finish uh, the, the, the news story about what happened in San Bernardino today. Oh, yeah. Just craziness, people come in and, and uh, you know, uh, I, I was talking to, um, I was talking to somebody today about that. And we were talking about the, the, the crazy evil in, in the world. And how close even those of us sitting in this room are even to that. See, we're capable. That's the scary thing, is that we are capable. And most of the world lives under that threat, that, 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 that evil personified in ways that we're not used to in this country. And yet it's coming, isn't it? It's coming. See, that's normative in places... In the Middle East, it's normative. It's normative in places in Central America where dictator after dictator after dictator has come through and taken advantage of all of these people. Evil, evil, in it for themselves only. Taking advantage of everyone all the time. And we're, we're so, we've been so immune to that. John says the evil age is it's present, it's current, it's active, and it's darkness. He just calls it darkness. Yeah, we can relate to that. He says, walk in the light because when Jesus comes, 
We have nothing to be worried about, nothing to be ashamed of, and we can be completely and totally confident. So the question again is, are you completely, totally confident? Was that first talking about our judgment? That's not what he's talking about here. The context here is, is that, well, yes. The context here is, he's contrasting those in the light and those in the dark. Remember, we've got we to keep the context clear in this letter. You're in the dark or you're in the light. There's no other place. There's no purgatory here. You're either in the dark or in the light. And so he's saying that, hey, be in the light. And when you're in the light, you can be completely confident and you will be completely unashamed when Jesus comes. Right. <sighs> unashamed. He's going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. See, that's a powerful, powerful <clears throat> message that, that John is, is proclaiming here to the church. Because they were struggling. Their friends left. Family left. Deceit. Evil. Darkness. John is just calling it what it is. Ay, ay, ay. It gets pretty personal. I think it's pretty personal. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. It's another big if there. What's the if? If what? If you know that he is righteous. So he says, If you know that he is righteous... How would you know that he is righteous, by the way? Amen, sister. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you, giving you the ability as you seek it and ask for it to discern these things. I like it. Pardon me? Can we back up a little bit? Sure. Back in the, the last chapter, verse 20, it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. <clears throat> and you know all things. So I'm going, what does that mean? You know all things. And so I looked up <clears throat> John mm-hmm. 16, 12, and 13. It says, and he's, they're talking back here. He's trying to tell him that I'm, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to leave somebody here for you. Okay? So In he my says, stead. Yeah. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot, <clears throat> you cannot bear them now. However... When he, the spirit of the truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And that's and then so that that's where you will know all things. And that's how come we will know all things because the spirit is in us. Amen. And Amen. I love it. Cross reference and figure out where that comes from, and Scripture will answer itself a hundred percent of the time. Not most of the time or some of the time. A hundred percent of the time. And so it's, it's awesome. So what we see here, and that's why the NIV is a thought-for-thought translation. And that verse says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. Because the assumption is, is that, hey, if you're in the light, you've got the Spirit of God. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. That Holy Spirit, if you appropriate it, will teach you everything you need to know. When he determines you need to know it. And most of the time when you need to know it, it's when you're seeking. 
or you're asking. You know, it, it's really interesting to me. Uh, I love listening to the radio. I have I have the Christian radio on all the time. I, I like listening to the various pastors and their messages, and, then, and I, I just I really enjoy that. And so, and it's interesting how some people have the ability to make a presentation, and we 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 joke about about. Um, you know, like I like Chuck Swindoll, who's been preaching the word, you know, you know, for 60 years or whatever, whatever it is, uh, and delivers a good message. And then there's J. Vernon McGee, who delivers the same good message, but with such a twang and southern drawl. You know, he's a good old mid- Midwestern boy. And uh, I always like to tell a story that. Uh, at, uh, he used to come on at, at, at bedtime, and I have a, a radio by the bed. And Jay Vernon McGee would come would come in. My, my wife would come to bed late, so she didn't have to listen to him. But if if, if Swindoll was on, she was fine listening to him. And I said, "You've got to get past the voice. It's what he's saying that matters." <laughs> you know. And so this anointing is what available to each of us to discern the truth based on what the Spirit in us. Why Jesus said, hey, I'm leaving. I'll be back. I'm leaving. But while I'm gone, while I'm gone, here's what you'll have. And so and so he says that 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 uh, what's the truth that you believe? I mean, we believe that he's righteous, right? Who's righteous? Christ. Christ. Okay. And so what is righteous? Because, I mean, we got to words matter, right? We use that word all the time. When I was in junior high school, we used to say, oh, righteous, man. We had no clue what it meant. But that was a, that was a term we used. I don't know where it came from. Where do these terms come from? But what is... Cool. <laughs> yeah, now everything's cool. I still use cool. I've been using that one for 50 years. But so, so, so words matter. What is righteous? What does the 57 Webster say, uh, Ernie, about, about what does the word righteous mean? We read the word righteous, but what does it mean? Unblemished. Huh? Unblemished, okay. Oh, that's a good one. Perfect. Perfect. The Holy Spirit calling me out the way because apparently. <laughs> well, here's what Webster's 1957 Webster's Dictionary says about about uh, the word righteous and its definition: acting rightly, upright, and according to what is right. Wow, that's really fascinating. So now you got to decide. Okay, so what's right? <laughs> Based on our relative um, uh, culture, right? Everything is truth is relative, right? But then if you go back and if you look at the Hebrew word, which I can't pronounce, but because where does righteousness, you know where the first time righteousness shows up in, in, in Scripture? Or who the first person is that's called righteous? Moses. Moses. Noah. So what does the Hebrew word, root root word for righteous? What does that's a mouthful? I can't I can't say it once slow. So the, from the Hebrew root word righteous means straight. I love that. Straight. I love that. And conforming to a norm. A norm. Something that would be normative or normal. Conforming to a norm. Straight. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about their walk with Jesus. And they said, I'm so exhausted. Why? 
Because I'm up and I'm down and I'm up and I'm down. Well, why is, why is that? And, and it's fascinating how this works. And they said, I just can't seem, I just can't seem to stay on the straight and narrow. That's the term they use. On the straight and narrow. Cool. Well, maybe you should be working towards righteousness. It's about straight. So if that's what it means, what do we know about it biblically? What do we know about righteousness biblically? Who is righteous? Jesus, God. Okay. Um, how did God reveal His righteousness? Through His Son, Through his son Jesus Christ. Exactly. And so, uh, how does God see you? Righteous through His Son. Okay. How righteous does He see you? Fully, fully righteous. Absolutely. He sees you fully righteous through Christ Jesus, your Lord and Savior, right? Okay, so we know that. And so we also know that that Jesus, Jesus was obedient to the Father, was he not? Okay, completely obedient. And absolutely had to be. No choice. So, no choice must do. There, there was a there was a relationship, there is a oneness between the Father and the Son, right? We can put words to it, but we can't understand it, right? All right, so there's a oneness to it. And, and Jesus was motivated out of this, out of this, out of love. God is love. And so he's motivated out of love, and he is fully righteous. And there's a trend that's developing as we try to understand the straightness of righteousness and this, and this, this, this confirmation we're conforming to, a, to, to, to something that's normative. And we see the trend as relationship. Because what's the most important thing that you have in Christ? Relationship. Relationship. Turn to Jeremiah 9.24. Let's go back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at two, Jeremiah 9.24. I always like to just thumb the pages until I find it. <coughs> Tell me when you're there. All right. Jeremiah 9.24. Look at this in terms of relationship. I want you to be thinking relationship because we're talking about righteousness. Jeremiah 9.24. But let the one who boasts boast about this. Now listen. That they have the understanding to know me. What does know me mean? <laughs> relationship. How can you know someone without being in relationship with them? You don't know somebody if you don't know them. It's relationship. That they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness or goodness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now, let's look at how relationships are so important to righteousness by staying in Jeremiah and going forward to Jeremiah 22.3. Jeremiah 22.3. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. 
I put in parens here, righteous, straight, and according to the norm as I have declared it, I being God. Okay? Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do not do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. It's about relationship between people. He says, do what's just and right. Be righteous. Be straight. Be normative in your relationships with God, according to, according to Jeremiah 9.24, and each other, according to Jeremiah 22.3. And one more. Flip all the way to the front. Go to Deuteronomy 24. Chapter 12. And this is going to solidify for you the relationship between righteousness and relationships. Deuteronomy 24, verse 12. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Who? Oh, yeah, there's that Moses guy. I saw uh, somebody sent me, maybe it was you or me? I don't know, it was on the, an email or something. And it was a picture that said, this, why you never go fishing. Have you seen that one? Fishing with Moses? Yeah, you never go fishing with Moses. Yeah, because he was fishing where there was no water there. Anyway. With the water. <laughs> the water had separated. Deuteronomy 24, 12 and 13. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you. And it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Righteous. Now, what's the context there? There was a poor person, and they got loaned some money, and they gave their cloak in pledge. And without that cloak, because they were poor, it was the only article of clothing that would keep them warm at night. So don't hold that cloak in for that pledge, for the loan that you made to that person. If you know that it's going to be freezing tonight, give it back to him. He's talking about being in relationship with somebody that was poor, compassion towards that person. And he says, and if you'll do that, it will be regarded by the Lord your God as being righteous. You see the trend in these? And there's a whole bunch more scripture references about how righteousness and relationship is between you and God and you and one another, us. There's a clear and direct relationship component to righteousness. So in one sense, righteousness is being in right relationship with God and one another. Get it? This way and this way. Being right relationship with the Lord this way and this way. Counted to you as righteousness. Who's the example? Jesus. Jesus went to get alone so he could pray. Father. And when he wasn't alone, who was he with? Everybody else. There was never a selfish act. 
I've been trying to find it. I've been reading this book for a long time now. I've been trying to find a selfish act that Jesus produced so that I could be like him. <laughs> but I can't find it. <laughs> exactly right. So you see, you see this, this relationship. Let's go back and let's look at verse 29 again. 1 John 2.29 If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. It gives you an example. What's the test for righteousness? If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Straight path? <coughs> There's a test. Who are we being compared to? What's the example? Jesus, okay? Christ-likeness is the test. Christ-likeness. Yeah. Hmm, that begs a couple of questions. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Why? Because you know he's righteous. Hmm. So you've got to remember still, John is contrasting those people that are in the light, people in the dark, right? The key component to righteousness, church, is relationship. The key, com- want to be righteous? See, God already sees you that way. Amen? God sees you as fully righteous. Nah. Would you like to behave in a righteous manner? The key component is relationship. First, with Jesus. If you're in right relationship with Jesus, trust me, you're not having to worry about being in right relationship with others, are you? You're not. If you're not in right relationship with others, there's a darn good chance you are not in right relationship with the Lord. See how it's tied together? Righteousness is the key component is relationship. And that's what John is talking about. He changes his tune just a little bit when he starts in verse 1 of chapter 3. Susan, would you read those first three verses in 3, 1 through 3, one more time? Okay. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. What's the condition, verse 1, what's the condition of being called a child of God? Or children of God. Love. Simple as that. The love of the Father. God loved you so much that when you accepted Him, He says, Bingo! You've been adopted. You are an adopted child of God. So when anybody asks you next time, So, where were you born? Well, it doesn't matter where I was born because I've, I've been adopted. You're adopted? Yeah, tell them the story. What a great way to open the gospel message to somebody that needs to hear it. Oh, yeah, God adopted me. What? God adopted you? Yeah. 
It's right here. I got it. It's in the paperwork right here. Here it is. <laughs> then John says, it's in the, I got the paperwork. Then John says, the reason the world does not know us is why? They didn't know Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? So why would we expect anything different? We talked earlier about sharing the truth and you would be called uh, you would be called a narrow-minded bigot today because you would be so judgmental. We've heard it over and over and over again. And why is that? Why is that? Why would we expect anything different when Jesus came? And they all said, "Nah." Why would we expect any different? But we do, don't we? Hmm. We care so much about what people think of us. I think sometimes we care more about what people think of us than we do about the truth. Just an aside. So we should be really careful because if we're motivated in any way to get approval by the world as opposed to being approved by God, boy, we're in trouble, aren't we? But, but, but that's a sin thing, isn't it? it it's, a, it's a sin nature thing. And we want approval. I mean, I want your approval. I, you want people's approval, don't you? It's hard when you don't have people, people that, that affirm you and, and approve you. And yet when you share the truth, oftentimes you get just the opposite. Yeah, turn you off. Yeah. We learned earlier that light and darkness have no fellowship, just as godliness and worldliness have no fellowship. They're incompatible. The light and the dark are incompatible. John said, hey... They bailed on us. They were never from us. Okay? And then he says, hey, don't love the things of the world. Because if you do, it's okay to have things of the world. That's not the problem. Just don't make them an idol. Don't put them above your relationship with me, he says. That's not too hard. 1 John 2.15 says that do not love the world or anything in the world. Remember the context, though. What is the context? The false teachers. He's talking about the false teachers who were denying Jesus in the flesh. They said, no, Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Because their desire was to be worldly. They, if they could figure out a way to blow off the truth of who Jesus is, they could do pretty much anything they wanted to do. Yikes! Do we do that? See, because before we start pointing fingers and throwing rocks in glass houses, do we do that? Of course we do. Yeah, of course we do. When you point fingers, remember there's three of them hunting back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I thought about it that way. Yeah, so I think we have to be. You know, I mean, we can, we can, we can, have, we can. We can use a little humor, but I mean, that, that, that's a pretty serious thing. It's a pretty serious thing that we have to be careful about. If we are, uh, if we are in a place where, where we are, um, as Jesus was saying, hey, we're doing the same as them. So be careful calling them out if we're doing the same thing. So what should our desire then, then be? Walk in light, okay, to pursue Christ likeness, righteousness. Verse 2 in chapter 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God. What were they before? Enemies of God. Enemies of God. Exactly right, Sally. 
So if we are now children of God, I mean, there's kind of like two classes. Because remember, he's talking about light and dark here. Okay. He says, dear friends, now we're children of God. That's a wonderful declaration, isn't it? And here comes a challenging one. He says, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we will we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's the declaration. We're children of God when once we were not. <coughs> and so, um, by the way, is this letter relevant for today? Okay. Yeah. What we will be has not yet been made known. What do you suppose that means? What does it mean... When John says, what we will be has not yet been made known. Our ultimate transformation. Our ultimate transformation in heaven. Remember when we studied heaven? We got a lot of information. The Bible gives us a lot. I think about this much when there's that much to be known. But I mean, but it does give us quite a bit. huh? We got a pretty good picture of heaven, at least initially. But John says what we will be, all of a sudden you see he's talking future. Up to this point he's been talking present tense, present tense, present tense, present tense. And then he says in the context of dear friends, now we're children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him. So there's something we don't know and something that we do know in this same verse. What we don't know is what we will be made. What we do know is what? That we'll be like him. Is that enough for you? Pretty much so. Pretty much so. (laughs) So at that point, our bodies get resurrected and the Holy Spirit leaves. Yeah, there's mystery, isn't there? I mean, you know, I think if God were going to reveal to us everything that he is going to reveal to us. The book would be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, what's the percentage of our brain that we use now? Is it 10 percent? They say, OK, 10 percent. Uh, I, I think some people less. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't mean for sure. Um, Half the United States. Well, and, and I'm thinking I'm thinking that of, of all the mysteries of God. If God were to reveal those to us, it'd be a pretty big volume, wouldn't it? We're not ready for it. No. And, and what does He say secondarily that we not that it hasn't been revealed to us? But what has been revealed to us? That we will be like Christ. We will be like Him. See, we will we will be known as He is known. And so I, I, I love that thought because the thought is is that you see we're so we're so stained with that sin nature that we're not capable. Sally, you're right. We are we are we are wholly incapable <coughs> because we have that we have that nature that we won't be rid of until until he comes or we're there. And and it is very mysterious, isn't it? I don't know that we can handle it. My guess is, I don't know this, I don't have any biblical support for this, but my guess is, is that's why he didn't reveal it to us, because we would be incapable of, there's, there's enough that I'm incapable of understanding as it is. 
But that, I'm sure, would go well beyond my capacity to understand. It would short-circuit everything. It would short-circuit everything. I mean, it's going to be so wonderful that we, you know, when, when uh, you know, we hear Paul talking about um, about heaven, you know, and he was he was whisked away, whether he was in the spirit or in the body, he didn't he didn't know. But one thing that he did know is that he couldn't des- he couldn't describe it once once it was over. Yeah. There there weren't words. He he wasn't. Yeah. So so the apostle Paul, guided by the Spirit, was incapable of communicating what he saw and experienced. That gives us a pretty good clue about the mystery and the wonderfulness of it. I'm looking forward to that. Because Ernie will be able to see with both eyes and Betty will be able to hear with both ears. (laughs) Cool, huh? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There are, there are three components to this sentence. Can you see them? What's the first thing? But we know that when he appears, it's an expositional study. We're looking at verse by verse, even word by word, because we want to understand what it means. We, but we know. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a declaration. Jesus will appear. You ever think about this when you're reading? Because if you slow down enough, if you slow down enough and meditate, and you just look at the words, you know it's okay not to read them boatload of scripture every day, week, or month. It's okay. It's okay if you read one verse and you meditate that on that today and you look at it 16 times during the course of the day. Hmm. Take this one, for example. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we see that when, we, we're gonna, when he appears, that's a declaration. When he appears, Jesus will appear. Okay, we already know that from elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? He says, I'm coming back. So when he appears, we see that declaration. We shall be like him. Romans 8.29. Wait a minute. Don't we always quote Romans 8.28 around here? Remember what 8.28? Anybody, can anybody paraphrase Romans 8.28? What? All things will work for the good for those that that love Jesus. That's a good paraphrase. But we often we forget verse 29 that comes right after it that says, For God, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. I love it because we quote, we quote some scriptures and it's helpful to quote those scriptures but it's also helpful to see the whole picture and the, the context of it. So we're very familiar with Romans 8.28, but we have, we have to finish it to make sure that the context is, is, is good. And, and we have to include that because we love him, right? That Jesus will appear, and when he does, we're going to get it. Why? Because we were predestined to be conformed to his image. So it's a process now. And when Jesus appears, we're going to be like him. 
Okay? I'm focusing some attention on this one verse. Why? Because it's worth thinking about. Isn't it? Betty, is it worth thinking about? Contemplating? Meditating on? That when Jesus appears, when you see Jesus, because you're going to, you're going to be like him. Do you ever think about how challenging it is in your life right now, today, in the present, to be like Jesus? Wow. We're talking God here. And yet, we're called to be. That's what Christian means. Call yourself a Christian? Little Christ. That's what it means. We're commanded to be Christ-like. But we can't on our own merit. Of course not. Of course we can't. But that doesn't change the declaration. Hmm. And yet it says when we see him, (sighs) sigh, yes, we'll be like him and we'll see him just as he is. Because I wonder with our clouded vision if we really can see Jesus. Are we capable? I don't think so. Not now. I think that's why John is is making such a big deal out of this. Because it hasn't been revealed to us. That's right. But it will be. It will be. And that's my point. Because scriptures say, hey, we'll get it. In the meantime, do you think you got your hands full? Of course we do. Of course we do. He didn't say it was going to be easy. He just said it would be simple, right, Wes? That's right. That a little child could get it, right? Right. All right. And then he calls us his children, right? Right. Okay. We should get it. And so (laughs) we should pursue it. Right? Practice. Because in as much as it depends on us, which some of it does, otherwise we say, okay, I'm a Christian and we don't do anything. Are we in the light or are we in the dark? Okay. We're in the dark. That's what John's writing this letter about. Dude, you are so in the dark. Because all you've done is you've gone off and you have completely changed what you heard from the beginning, which was so simple. Not easy, because people are going to hate you because of this simplicity. Because they first hated me, Jesus said. Yet, it's, it's so simple. But it's not easy. Because some of us have been doing this for like 130 years, aren't we? It's a process. A little more than that. But we're being transformed into the image of Christ even now. Amen? Okay, how do you know that? Because you have a Holy Spirit in you. Okay. What else? Because You're going to sneeze, you can't speak. Because the Bible tells us. Okay, you don't, because the Bible, because it is written. Okay, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thank you, Jesus. 
If you have Jesus, you are free in Christ. Boy, I'll tell you what. You know what? You know what we pray about around here a lot. Um, uh, what we pray around uh, here a lot about is that people would experience their freedom in Christ. Because so many are carrying around this bucket full of weight. Why? The devil is so good at loading weight. Isn't he? And Jesus says, just give it to me. Because, man, there's just so much freedom in that. You don't have to be a slave to that anymore. That's what he said. But he says, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Yeah, it does require something of us. Contemplating the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into his image with ever Increasing glory. It's progressive. Which comes from the Lord who is spirit. Simple. It says, contemplate the Lord's glory. So, Betty, we can spend the next four days, if you want to, contemplating the glory of the Lord. Maybe even by memorizing one or two verses. Thinking about it over and over. God, reveal to me what... How awesome is this? That you've done this out of love for me? For me? You love me that much, God? Personally? And my righteousness is based on a relationship with you? And you see me as fully... I'm a knucklehead. How could you see me as fully righteous, God? Contemplate on that for a while. Contemplate the Lord's glory. Do that more. Back to 1 John 3.3. 3. Everyone who has this hope, that's an unshakable confidence, right? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. So who's the example? What is the purifying John is speaking about? Purifying from what? What? Purifying. Okay. Oh, good. Okay. So, hmm. So Jan... John's all, all of a sudden talking about sin, isn't he? Hmm. ruh it gets, it gets more serious after this. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Okay? All right. Susan, will you read 1 John chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6? Yeah, we're done with the fun part. Okay, here we go. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Ooh, that's it. Those three verses, right? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we have just two. Verse four, Verse four. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. What does that mean? Everyone who sins. Let's answer the first question. What is sin? Lawlessness. <laughs> sin is lawlessness. Okay. And if you were going to, if you were going to define sin uh, by by definition, what does the word sin mean? You've heard this before. Miss the mark. Missing the mark. 
Okay, we've heard this before. It's an, it's an archery term, you know. You, you know, you, you do the. I'm not very good at sounds, but anyway, so you you miss the mark, okay? And if I were doing that archery, I would probably not only miss the mark, I would miss the whole target. I'd miss the whole target. In fact, stand behind me for sure. I'm, I'm confident. So sin is. Uh, from the Greek, of course, uh, missing the mark, taking the wrong road, or deviating from course. Uh, that's what sin is. And it, sin is a pretty prevalent theme in the Bible, is it not? <laughs> Why do you suppose that is? Because he ate the apple. <laughs> because he ate the apple, okay. Yeah, so we're missing the mark. So it's dominant because, yeah, we're sinners. We're we're sinners, and what's the Bible all about? I mean, if sin is a real prevalent theme in the Bible. What's the Bible all about? Saving us from our sins. Exactly right. Exactly right. God's gracious salvation from it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so if we're missing a mark, what mark are we missing when we sin? The purity. <laughs> the purity. Okay, right. just talk about purifying ourselves. Christ what is purity? Like. Christ-likeness? Righteousness. Righteousness? Light. L- light? Oh. Purity. Okay, purity. Your wife already said that. She beat you to it, but that's okay. It's an echo. That's an echo in here. It's a roll of echo. All right. What law are we breaking when we sin? Everyone who sins breaks the law. What law are we breaking? God's law. Okay. What law is that? All of it. Okay. Perfect. Because the word that's used here in its broadest sense, John is saying that everyone who sins breaks the law. It's inclusive of all of God's law. And I'm talking about, or not I'm talking about, he's talking about um, God's natural law, the Mosaic law, the, 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 the law of Christ that we, that we see about in Corinthians and Romans. In fact, he says, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin, and sin is lawlessness. They're synonymous. God's standard. He set. He established a standard, and we when we miss the mark, whose mark are we missing? God's mark that He established for us, for our benefit, for our good. So sin is the transgression of God's law. Now we could go deeper into some theological points on that in terms of of the Mosaic law and so forth. But in this case, the word that's used is 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 the law in the in the greatest sense, in the biggest sense. So we have to remember that John, in context, is calling out who? Sinners. sinners. And specifically in this letter, the sinners that he's calling out specifically were who? The ones in the, the, ones in the dark. What? The ones in the light. The, the ones that are outside of the light. The ones that were outside of the light. The ones that were in the darkness. The teachers that came in and pulled those out of the church. And, and John said, hey, they never belonged to us. If they had belonged to us, they'd just still be here. 
Because they would have had what? As Diana said earlier, they would have had the power of the Holy Spirit in them, seeking the truth by discernment. They would have been on, they would have been to Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings a lot, and they would have been seeking the power of the Spirit that was already in them, appropriating 100% of it and saying, hey, show me what's right. As opposed to just tickling their ears. But they left. Why? Because they wanted to sin. They wanted to sin because it was fun. It was easier. But it led to death. They just didn't get that part. Because they didn't believe what they'd heard from the beginning. So they were teaching these teachers. Remember, we've got to stay in context. They were teaching that God had no concern about what they were doing in the flesh. Very interesting. Guess they were in the darkness. Guess they hadn't read his book. <laughs> well, they hadn't complied with what they had been taught from the beginning. They listened to it, and then as opposed to like Wes says, but it's simple. Just read it, and if you if you stick with the if you stick with the basics, it, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Okay. And so we can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and that's okay. But if you stick with the fundamentals of the faith, it's pretty straightforward. And they they didn't care for that because they were into self and they were so selfish that they wanted to live a particular way so they had to do something because they couldn't comply with God's law because for them in their worldly view it was too restrictive they couldn't do what they wanted nothing has changed nothing has changed it even happens that way in the church we, we can call it liberalism if you want, but there are churches that have disavowed this. Yep. Why? Why would they do that? Because they don't like what it says. Because they don't like what it says. And so given the fact that we, do, we talk about this all the time, the reason they do that is because if they, if, they, if they toss out the authority, who becomes the authority? They do. That's right. And they're in the darkness. That's what John is saying. That's right. That's what John is saying. Verse 5 says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Jesus came. Why? To take away our sin. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. No need to complicate that. In fact, John one twenty nine says, the, day, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've heard that a thousand times, haven't we? Yeah, that's, that's who he is and why he came. 926b says, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Back to verse 5. And in him is no sin. John uses the present tense again. In him is no sin. See, the emphasis is his sinlessness. That's a characteristic of God, of Jesus Christ. In what? <coughs> Eternity. Past, present, and future. Jesus is sinless, our example. In his humanity, in his deity, sinless. And we're to be like him. In fact, we're being transformed into his image. How do you feel about that? How are you doing with that, Mark? It's kind of hard to believe it, <laughs> when you think of who God is. 
that if, if he says that's what's happening, that's what's happening. Sometimes it doesn't feel like, I don't know about in your life, but sometimes in my life I feel, I feel, I can feel stagnant. I feel like, God, are you really transforming me? It is a, it is a process, isn't it? So the encouragement is, don't worry about that. Do something, but don't worry about it, for goodness sakes. The transformation process we call sanctification is indeed a process. And each one of us is unique. The expectation is, of course, that we are being transformed. Because if we're not, John says, we're in the darkness. Yeah. If you're not being transformed, you need to ask some pretty hard questions. Amen? Okay. And so, what was happening with the people that left the church? There was no transformation in the process. None. They weren't being transformed. They were in the darkness. So, this last piece, and we'll end, is where the church really gets hung up. Okay, now I want you to really think about this in your own personal life for a second, okay? Personalize it now. Verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Let's read that one more time, shall we? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Don't raise your hand. How much sinning have y'all done since Sunday's message? Too much to count. <laughs> is, this, is this not talking about... I mean, everybody, since we're sinful creatures, everybody sins, period. Mm-hmm. Is this more talking about habitual sinning? Context is critical, isn't it? Context, context, context. John says, in context, he's talking about false teachers... And the group that left the church. I keep coming back to that because we have to contextualize it. Otherwise, if you take this out of context, how could you take verse 6 out of context? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. How could you take that out of context? We would, well, we should probably all consider ourselves that we never knew him. Yeah, I sinned today. So I never knew it. Yeah. So if you take this out of context, that means that, oh my gosh, I'm not in Christ. I have no hope. I'm lost. I'm not sick. I mean, if you take it out of context, you could circle the drain here. Context is critical. So what's the context? John, John is saying that if we sin at all, we don't know Jesus? No, no. John is saying, are we to be sinless to be saved? No, no. Do we lose our salvation if we sin? No, that's not what he's talking about. Absolutely not. See, because in context, he is refuting the claims of those teachers that had entered the church and said that in the flesh, they were Gnostics, that in the flesh, they were claiming to be children of God and therefore, they could sin in the flesh, but spiritually, God still saw them as fully righteous. What? 
You talk about justification for doing what you wanted to do. So that's like, okay, party down. We got eternal life. No, they missed a few steps, didn't they? Because they didn't believe what they'd heard from the beginning. It was justification to have them be on the throne. That's all it was. It's really simple. That's right. So here's what they were claiming. They were claiming to be born of God and therefore, because of their claim to be born of God, that they were unable to sin. Because they were claiming not to be sinners. They were claiming to have a right standing with God apart from doing anything on their own to pursue godliness and holiness. I love the tie into the messages on Sunday about about repentance. Good and happy. Godly and holy. Man, I've used that a lot the last few weeks. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, hey, they wanted to be good and happy. Because if they said they're not sinners, they could do anything they want. I'm good. No, that's not what Jesus said. Pursue godliness and holiness, he said. They were claiming God's law and all that Jesus commanded to have no authority over them. Wow. Does that sound familiar? We see it all the time. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What John is talking about is exactly what you said. The perpetual and willful sinning while claiming to be a child of God. And see, this is the scary part where, okay, bigots, I'm sorry this has to be on the tape. Not really, because it's the truth of Scripture. Because what it says in Scripture is... Pick a topic of the day. Oh, let's just do it, shall we? What about homosexuality in the church? Everybody has an opinion that matters not. What matters? It's a difficult topic. I have several gay friends that I love. One of whom claims to be a Christian. On what authority? Praise God, he's willing to even have the conversation. I I haven't changed his mind by showing him scripture. Because he would have to change his lifestyle. And he doesn't want to do that. It's in the darkness. It's in the darkness. It's painful to say that. I love this guy. He likes being in the dark. (laughs) Because he's unwilling to submit to authority. John is talking about those who willfully are disobedient. That's all. What he's not talking about here in context is the followers of Jesus who are in the light and yet are sinners. See the difference? There's a huge difference. Well, it's impossible for us not to stand until we get changed. That's right. A willful and disobedient heart is in the darkness. But those that are in the light, that have committed their lives to godliness and holiness, and yet they're imperfect 
and they sin, you see, are forgiven. Why? Why are they forgiven? Because Jesus died on the cross. Because Jesus died on the cross and they asked for forgiveness and repentance. There's a step that the people in the dark have not taken. And it's painful because there isn't anybody in this room that doesn't know somebody that's in that category. And it's painful. It's painful to speak the truth even in love because what Jesus said was in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, and they will if you speak the truth even in love. Keep in mind that they hated me first, Jesus said. Oh, this is really super powerful and really painful too, isn't it? Because it's about relationship. Whose heart is pained most? God's heart. God's heart is pained most. So if you think you're experiencing some relational pain from somebody that you know that you have a relationship with that is in the darkness, even if they're claiming not to be, but Scripture says that they are, and the pain in your own heart, whatever you feel, I don't know how much more it is magnified in God's heart, but I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot because Scripture tells us so. So try speaking that truth in the world today. I encourage you to do it in love. Speak the truth in love. And this might not seem like it. Because John is just speaking the truth. (laughs) But my challenge to you is, if you think that John is speaking the truth and it's not in love... Check, out, check yourself in terms of the context of the culture that we live in because the culture has influenced your thinking speaking the truth in love has never gone out of style Jesus told us to do that challenging as that may be mm-hmm.